Good evening. Well, we're going to continue in the book of Daniel. And since um, what we're going to look at this evening is really a follow-up, a continuation of what we looked at this morning, uh, looked at this morning, perhaps a, a brief synopsis of what we went through, because there are some new faces here. A brief synopsis of what we went through uh, this morning is in order. <clears throat> we noted that really the theme of the message is, or the question really raised is, our testimony, our public testimony. I know that we, of course, have our time with the Lord in devotion. We have our time in, in the study of the Word of God. There are acts that are extensions or expressions of faith in our life. But really the key here for us, and we're looking at Daniel, is to see what is our public testimony, because the question again is raised that we are now seeing that there are two worldviews at odds even in this country. It was something that was set back in the past, but it is no longer so. It's coming to a forefront where there are men and women that are taking a stand based on conscience, and our point here uh, this morning or this evening is not to say that one is right or not, but the, we are going to also, uh, no doubt, be called to this issue of conscience, being able to, to live our lives as believers in the public arena and perhaps be persecuted for it. And so this issue of how are we to live our life as a testimony for the Lord in the public arena. The two points, the, the two major world views, as if it were, of course, is um, the position of, that there are truths and moral values that are absolute because God is absolute. And then there is the principal worldview, and it really doesn't matter whether it is religious other than Christian, and I'm not talking about Christian in the sense of religion, but those that have a relationship with Christ. There is a view, there, there is a world system out there, a worldview that looks at things in a relative way. That is that there is no real absolute but that things move as society changes, as the time goes by, and so on and so forth. And that throughout every period of history, peoples could determine what is the absolute for them, and that absolute will change down the road. So we had, and I use the example of homosexuality, not that I'm picking on homosexuality. Homosexuality is no worse a sin than any other sin. Adultery, fornication, theft, or whatever else. But we're picking on that, uh, we're looking at that principally because that is in the limelight for us today. Because the Supreme Court has made that you know, marriage between uh, homosexuals 
part of the law of the country. It used to be that it was a sin, and the world, the, um, certainly this country, viewed it as sin, even, even if they weren't true believers. The, st the biblical standard was permeated society in such a way. Of course, that then diminished and went into an area where, uh, you know, like the military suggest, don't bring the subject up and everything is fine. To a point now where it's accepted and not only accepted, but we are to celebrate it. And so we, we have no right then to say that in fact, the word of God says it's sin. And we say so because we have a God that is absolute and his moral standards are absolute. And so we looked at this issue of where are we in this regards to this worldview. As believers, we ought to recognize the absoluteness of God and therefore the absoluteness of truth and morality. And then if we associate ourselves, identify ourselves with the Lord, there will be a, an attempt by the world to crush that identification because they don't want to be reminded of the issue of judgment, as we suggested before, that there is a God that they are accountable to. There is an issue of accountability. And then, of course, if we are indeed true believers, not only identified with the Lord Jesus Christ, but living the Lord Jesus Christ character, that what we claim here as identification ought to permeate our lives. That we ought to live Christ because Christ lives in us. And so that's the standard. Now, if that is true, and if we live according to the absolutes of God, we are going to be tested and brought to a position where we will have to give a testimony. That testimony will be for the Lord or against him. Now, none of us can say we're going to follow after the Lord even to the point of death. Peter did that and fell flat on his face, didn't he? We can think that, but until we are in the furnace, in the crucible, we really don't know. But we ought to know at least the standard. And so we are going to be tested. And we're going to have to deal with this whole idea, what will my testimony now be before the peoples of this world? And so we're going to take a look at two areas, really, uh, that are exceedingly familiar to everyone here, I'm sure. If there were a bunch of little children here, they could tell you the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel and the lion's den. And that's what we're going to take a look at. But before we go there, let's take a look at chapter 2, because I think it's paramount to understand 
what has gone on. We're looking at Daniel, but we're looking at it from a moral perspective rather than a, um, a prophetic perspective. But it's important to take a look and see at, at least get a glimpse of the, um, the prophetic element here so that we can base the moral aspect of testing and testimony on a world view of a leader. Here, of course, it's Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 2, if you would go with me to chapter 2. I'll read uh, probably extended portions here and then just make a comment here. I told my grandson this morning, and he asked you, I really didn't prepare a message. We just have a running message through issues that I've been dealing with with young men and women. And it's amazing. In fact, it's startling. In fact, it's frightening at the point of view that true believers, young people, have regarding the issue of absolute law, absolute moral values, or relative values. And they fall into this classification of living life based on relative values rather than moral values. And so here we, let's take a look first at this particular chapter and see kind of the background for the, what remains of our time together. Uh, chapter 2, now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers and sorcerers and Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king and the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. Let's drop on down... Uh, uh, drop on down to verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. Now you take a look at this group of men, here, these Chaldeans that are um, magicians, so-called, uh, of course, they, they, it wasn't magic. These, this was the, the think tank, the royal think tank. These were intellectuals, men that could reason, men that had an ability to uh, make a determination on facts that are presented to them. And yet they're saying here, we are limited. Our intellect, our knowledge, our ability to reason is limited. It's naturalistic in position. We only know what is here, what is in this material world. 
And we cannot know something that is beyond that. And you're asking us to, to, to bring you word of something that we cannot bring you. And so, of course, uh, the, uh, Nebuchadnezzar determines that they ought to die, and he sends out his uh, chief guard along with, uh, with his entourage to kill these, uh, uh, these folks. And Daniel gets wind of this, and he goes to Arioch, the one who's been assigned to kill um, these folks, and he says to him, uh, verse 15, he answered and said to Eric, this is Daniel, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? And Eric made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning the secret, so, Daniel, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision, so Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Here it is again. Man can work in the realm of the natural. But there is a God that is beyond that. He is absolute, but he is also beyond the natural. He is in the supernatural, and he reveals secrets. It isn't simple knowledge, it is revelation. Wonderful thing, do we take enough time to look at the revelation of God here between these covers, 66 books. God has revealed truths that are just utterly amazing. No one could come up with the idea of a church, for instance. We find nothing in it in the Old Testament, the bride of Christ. It's all revelation. And there's much in this particular book, the book of Daniel, and we're not going to spend a whole lot. But just to see the, the difference of man and his knowledge, it's restricted to the natural realm. But there is a God that is outside all of that. He's in the supernatural realm, and he re reveals to his own. Now, the revelation was this, very quickly again, verse, uh, well, let's go on down to uh, it, the wonderful truths here. You have to read it for yourself. Daniel, of course, answered and said, and bless the name of God, and so on and so forth. Here's a group of young men, four young men that get down on their knees in a kingdom that is foreign to them, a kingdom that is, uh, even though it's placed them in positions of, of power and honor, is a is a, a, a kingdom that is in opposition as far as worldview. And so here they are, four young men, and they get down on their knees. What an example for us. What an example for the young men and women here. Just four. And of course, they got down on their knees, and the Lord revealed the truth. 
but they didn't forget the Lord. They gave thanks. Verse 20 through 23, you can read through that. They gave thanks to the Lord. Now Daniel goes to the king. Uh, verse 26, the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Watch, uh, drop on down to verse 31. You, O king, were watching and behold a great image, this image whose splendor was excellent stood before you and, it for, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly of, and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Verse 37, no, verse 36. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. What is he saying here? that you have a place of power, the preeminent power in the world, and it's the God of heaven, the revealer of truth, that has placed you there. You have no power in yourself. What kind of a worldview do you have now? And he's saying the basis of your kingdom is the, the work of, of God. He raises up and he puts down. And we ought to take that to account even in regards to this country and this form of government. Very few democratic governments have lasted more than 200 years. Perhaps we're on borrowed time. And so he's giving them that, the, the, the point that God has placed him in that position He's the head of gold. But after you, he's also now saying that not only is he placed in that position, but there is tenure to his kingdom, that his kingdom will end. After you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, and so on and so forth. And it goes down through the four kingdoms, and you know very well what those kingdoms are. They are the kingdoms of men. Here's this, this colossus of a man with four parts of varying metals, starting with the, the, um, the very richest of all, the gold, the most expensive, but um, the least in its hardness, and as the, the, the 
cost of the metal goes down, it, of course, strength increases. And that fourth kingdom, which is representative of, uh, of Rome, is iron and the toes of iron and clay yet to come. And we're not here to, to express this except this, that there is a stone that comes out that it's, that, um, let's see what, uh, what it says here. And you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Here it is, all of the kingdoms of the world. And we talk about the Roman Empire down the, in the future of rising up again. It isn't simply the Roman Empire. All four empires will be there in effect. They will be drawn up as, as uh, Babylon was eaten up by Persia and Persia by Greece and so on and so forth. Dominion came, but the kingdom never stopped. And so these four will be seen in or under or of the Roman Empire. But there is a kingdom, a stone that is made without hands that is, doesn't follow in the lineage of these kingdoms, but comes out and destroys by cutting down the, the legs and feet of this colossus and destroys it. That kingdom, that stone kingdom, is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ as he establishes the kingdom. He is the rock that is our foundation. He's the cornerstone from which all things are measured. He is the capstone, the keystone that holds everything together. It is Christ and his kingdom, and we're part of that, dear saints. We're part of that kingdom. Continues on. Um, Verse 44, and in, that, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces. This is the stone kingdom. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And as much as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke the pieces of the iron and bronze and clay and silver and gold, all of it destroyed. So he's saying, look, your position as the ruler of the kingdom, your government is given by God himself, but it is limited. It has a limit down the road. There is tenure to it. It's not going to continue on forever. But there is a kingdom that is going to continue on forever. And so the emphasis I'm trying to make here is the tenure of the kingdom. Because we're going to look now at the power of the kingdom. Most kingdoms, this country, the presidents that have been all along, the Congress, the people, us, think that this is going to continue on. And we see some changes that we don't like, and so we want men, so we want to make changes through political means to bring us back to that which we were. 
I think that we have here the, what is it, the second law of thermodynamics of politics, right? We're going to continue on along the line of destruction, right? So, and we need to be careful that we don't attempt to make changes by politics. There is a tenure, there is a period in which the kingdoms last. Now let's go to chapter three. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold. He's here, Daniel just told him that you're the head of gold and that you have a limited time. Your kingdom has a limited time. And he says, you know what? It's as if it didn't even, it went one ear and out the other. He says, you know what? I'm going to make not just a head of gold, but I'm going to make the whole image. And he makes this 90-foot colossus out in the desert, and he says, uh, along the plains, and he says, here you are, all made out of gold. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and his width six cubits. He set it upon the plains of Dura in the province of Babylon, and King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to uh, to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar set up. And so he says, here, I'm going to bring in all the representative, all of the chief folks from all of my domain, my kingdom, all the various pro uh, provinces, and I'm going to bring them back here so that they can bow down before my image, before me, before the government that I represent. And that's what he's saying. So the saptors and administrators and councils, of course, all of them came. Then a herald, verse 4, then a herald cried out aloud, uh, to you it is commanded, O people, the nations and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony, with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Here he is. He's put out all of these folks, thousands of them. And he says, look, when the royal symphony plays, you fall down and you worship the idol that I set up. Notice the idol is of a man. The idol is of a man. Atheistic humanism, I think, is in view here. Humanism sets up man as a god. And he's saying here that my power is such that I demand your obedience. Now let's drop on down a little further. Verse eight, therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn flute uh, Lear, psaltery, and symphony with, uh, <clears throat> with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image, and so on. And uh, uh, let me see if here if we can cut in a little later. Verse 12, there are certain Jews 
whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which, they have, which you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar goes into a rage, and he brings these young men out before him. Um, And he says in verse 15, now if you are ready, he's speaking to, the, to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you're ready at the time you hear the sound of, again, of the symphony, uh, and you fall down before the image to worship it, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning fire. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? Now the issue isn't on tenure, the issue is on power. Does the government have absolute power? That's the question that's raised here. If God is absolute, and he has absolute power, and his standards are absolute, then obviously man's power is not absolute. And you say, well, wait a minute. There's a threat of death, and he's going to put them to death, or at least attempt to. Isn't that absolute power? Well, is it? That's the question, isn't it? Who will deliver you from my hand? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, who whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O God, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Now, for a moment, Bring your sanctified imagination into gear. Look at these young men. Now, say one of them is married, or all of them are married. They have a family. They're under pressure. They're under pressure first from the king. They're under pressure from all of these thousands that have already bound. They're under pressure, I'm sure, from an element of those that were Jews there, that were fellow brethren. And then they're under psychological pressure individually. How about if they were married? The pressure from a wife and children. Don't you love me? You mean you're not going to bow? They're going to kill you. What about me? What about the children? Can we bear that kind of pressure? Is our life the absolute standard? Well, in the case of these three young Hebrews, no. The standard is, the absolute standard for them is God. Is God. And all decisions are made based on that. These three young men said, no, I will not bow. Why not just get lost in the crowd? There are thousands of them. 
He's not asking that you, that you uh, reject your belief in the eternal God of Israel. All he's saying is just bow. We'll get lost in the crowd. Why not just bow? Do you see the issue of testimony here? Wouldn't it just be okay just to get lost with the crowd? Nobody will know. We can still, two minutes before we bow, we can call upon the name of Jehovah. Two minutes after we bow, we can do the same. He's not asking for us to reject the God of Israel. He's just asking us to bow before this ridiculous structure of a man. Testimony. If God is absolute, then we ought to stand on the moral absolutes that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood. Now let's go on to chapter 6 for the last few minutes that we have. Chapter 5 is very interesting. Remember those, uh, those implements from the, um, those vessels from the temple that Daniel mentioned and we suggested that they were representative of the absolute God and his standard, shows here that the destruction of a nation took place because of the misuse of those vessels by um, Belshazzar. But we find in the end of chapter 5, Belshazzar is is judged to the point of death, and his kingdom now is given to the Medo-Persians under, under uh, Darius. And so in chapter 6 begins now with a completely new kingdom, not just a new ruler. Uh, Belshazzar was either the son or the grandson, depends who you read in the, through history, the son or the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. The kingdom of the um, Babylonians, of course, is finished between chapter 5 and chapter 6. Chapter 6 opens up a new kingdom that swallows up the uh, kingdom of um, Belshazzar, the kingdom of Babylon. Verse 1 of chapter 6, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom and over, those, over these three governors of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an Excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to, set, uh, to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could not find, or they could find no charge of fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or failure found in him. We are to be obedient to the government. 
And that's true whether it's a despotic government like Nebuchadnezzar's, who could say, you live, you die, or to a government, as we'll see here, that is under law. It doesn't matter, or anything that is in between. We are to be faithful to that government, except when it presents itself as being absolute and attempts to displace the absoluteness of God. And so here we say, you know, he, they couldn't find anything, no fault at all regarding his service to the government. We shall not find any charge against this Daniel, verse 5, unless we find it against him concerning not the law of the Medes and the Persians, but the law of God. That's where we're going to find a little lich in his armor. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king, verse 6, and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom and administrators and satraps, the councils, the advisors have, con and, uh, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish a decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which, just, which uh, does not alter. The law of the uh, Medes and the Persians was such that Darius, even though he was the, the principal head, after signing that, even he was obligated to follow the law. And he could not backtrack. He couldn't somehow say, well, okay, I am the principle here, I can change that. He can't. And so he got caught in a trap by these men who wanted to destroy Daniel. Now, let's go back just very quickly to verse 8. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. And when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. You see, the, there can be an establishment of laws attempting to add, uh, eradicate the absolute standard of a holy God. Now, let's be rational here. Let's be reasonable just for a moment. What's the problem with closing the window? And does God not hear silent prayer? Why pray audibly? 
If you want to leave the window open to Jerusalem, why not just pray audibly? But what does it say? And he gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. He's saying no law is going to change the standard of testimony that I have established. These men knew exactly where to go. What does it say here? Then these men Verse 11, then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplications before God. There they are, they are under the window listening in because they knew his pattern all the way from Babylon, the early days in Babylon. And they knew that they couldn't catch him any other way except to entrap Darius into making a law that they knew Daniel would break. We talked about this woman that was a clerk, and she was a clerk before the law came in by the Supreme Court to uh, establishes marriage between homosexuals. And she says, no, that's, I, my conscience is such that I can't do that. I raise this question with young people and raise it with you, but I'm expect you to think it through yourself. Was she right? You know, I will say this, that the majority of answers were that she should quit. She should have quit, should she? Every time that there is pressure by law or by dictate, are we to give up underneath it or do we have the right before God? No, the obligation before a holy God to be a testimony for him. He is absolute. Man's laws, man's decrees are those which have a time frame and have no power beyond the absoluteness of the moral standards of an absolute God. And so here is, what would you do in this case? It says Daniel knew. It isn't like he kind of fell into the trap by, without knowledge. He says, now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went right on doing what he always did. Dear Christians, we ought to go into our closets as well, shut the door and open the window to heaven. And pray. That's, what, that's really what was being spoken of here, Daniel. Daniel. Do we compromise or do we stand firm? I can't answer the question for you, only you can answer the question. But the principles are set down in a book that was written 2,600 years ago. Do we live by these principles or do we live by the standards of this world? Do we live by the uh, moral absolutes or do we live by relative uh, in the realm of, uh, of uh, moral relativity? That's the question for us. Again, 
things that we, I think, are going to be faced with more and more, and it's worthy to note that this book here can answer them for us. May we search it for its truth and for its absolute value before a holy God and this world. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank Thee again for Thy holy word. We thank Thee, O blessed Father, that this book, although it is years old, written with Daniel some 2,600 years ago, and yet is it has relevance today in our time. How we thank thee, Father, for that, that thy word is timeless. We pray that we might take these principles, Father, and recognize that it is only you who is absolute, and therefore your moral standards are such that they cannot be changed. We pray that we might live by them in these times that are about to change, we're not facing death, but we do face levels of persecution where fear enters in, at work, at school, and such. And so, Father, we pray for strength in dealing with these issues, moral issues, in a fashion that would be a true testimony for thee, that thou, blessed Father, might be glorified in the name of the Lord Jesus, lifted up on high. We ask it all in his lovely name. Amen.